Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello and a very warm welcome to this edition of Borough Talks, Borough Markets, a podcast series on all things food and food culture. Our guest today is Charles slash Charlie Tebbett of Food and Forest Market Trader. Hi, Charlie. Good morning. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, doing really well. Glad to be here. Lovely to see you. So Market Trader, as I say, and um, I'm going to ask you to tell us in a nutshell, first nut pun. (laughs) They're disallowed, Angela. Oh my God. Well, sorry, we're three seconds in. Oh, please. Yeah, dude on chondras and nut puns all the way. Um, Charlie, tell us, you tell us about food and forest rather than me making it up for you. All right, let's get cracking then. So, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, so it's four years old, just over four years old. So, um, and it's kind of born out of uh, uh, what I was studying uh, just before. So I started in November, straight off the back of a master's in ecology. So I was, and we can maybe go into that if yeah, you're interested. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just because... The masters was essentially. Well, actually, before we get into that, just just let's just give the listeners what is food and forest for sure, anyone who yeah. doesn't know. Start from the beginning. So, not, food and forest is a uh, company specialising in uh, niche varieties of nuts. So, we um, work directly with um, farmers across Europe and also in South Africa now, which is quite interesting. Um, and then we reinvest the profits into creating what's called agroforestry. So. The kind of reason for being of the company is to expand um, agroforestry, which is a type of farming which essentially combines trees with standard agriculture. Well, you know, what's that? Well, that's everything and nothing. But what we're trying to specify and, and be clear on is that we're trying to integrate nut trees with standard arable farming. So uh, and we can maybe go into the benefits yeah, a little bit later. Yeah. yeah. Um, I should say I am slightly evangelical about food and forest nuts. I do spend a disproportionate amount of time when I'm doing demos and things at the market sort of saying, you've got to go and get them. They're the best. They're going to change your life. You've never had nuts like these. Um, and that really is the case. And so I do want to talk about the the principles of you know, the farming and your approach to it, but also all those things that then go into just making the flavour and the texture of these nuts so fabulous. But let's go back. You started to tell us about your master's. Let's go back to how you got into, into this being what you do. Yeah. Yeah, well, the the master itself is a bit of a waste of time. I kind of learned more of it when. <laughs> well, I just thought I'd put that in there. You yeah, know, I didn't yeah, want to yeah. be kind of Fair pretentious yes, about it yeah, all. Yeah. You know, it's uh, um, I mean, it was a good handle into into um, some of the literature and so on, and give me a bit of time to really figure out um, what I wanted to do and and what was also needed. So, the big thing that I came across in a lot of the literature was people were talking about alley cropping, which is this specific type of agroforestry which combines combines kind of fruit or nut trees with um, arable crops, so wheats, barley, oilseed rapes, things like that. Um, and then in the literature, we're getting a lot of um, people calling for, number one, a market for produce, and then also the uh, capacity to take these products, these new products from um, from tree to, to finished product. And so we kept coming across that all the time in the literature. And thought, well, you know, it's, I'm not really, you know, predisposed to spending long hours in the library. It's not my personality type, and so on. So I thought, well, let's let's just go for it. Let's try and let's try and do what the literature is calling for. Let's try and do something good, um, but also just just be real about who I am and what I'm yeah. kind of built for. Can I so. go back even further, Charlie? Are you sure. from a farming background? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. But I, one of the main influences 
on this whole trajectory was well, two things really. I've always been interested in food. Like I've always my my first job was you know at fifteen was in was in restaurants. So always always been in that that world. Always found it fascinating. And even even earlier, you know, around you know, was big influenced by my parents on on you know what they you know holidays in France was. You know, you, you're surrounded by beautiful producers. Their their, their food culture over there, how um, dining together matters, and um, we can go into that. But um, sorry, point me in the right direction. What's no, the question? No, 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 that is all interesting. Because I'm interested in how you end up doing this masters. Because it's a sure. uh, niche is going to be the wrong word, but it's a it's a it's a very particular avenue to be going down. Yeah. And it's sort of how what it was that is sort of triggering that interest for you. Yeah, yeah, fine. Well, so yeah, did my under well. So I suppose it's relevant, yeah, all the way back, did those, um, kind of always had this interest in in food and always found it a very interesting kind of nexus of these cultural issues, these biological, uh, these kind of biological interests, you know, always always had a, a, an interest in science, particularly biology. And so it made sense for me to um, kind of follow that interest a bit further. And it was very much shaped by an undergrad, which which was a brilliant undergrad, it's called Human Sciences, is still available at UCL. And they allow you to choose whichever uh, modules you want to do. You can take anything from different from different faculties, as long as it has science in the name. So, and there, it, for the dissertation, the only thing they, they stipulate is that it has to be interdisciplinary. Right. So you have to be able to combine, you know, biological science with some kind of social sciences as well. So, and agriculture obviously lends itself so well yeah. to that. So I ended up doing my dissertation on, um, I mean, it's not entirely relevant, but it was basically Ethiopian agricultural policy because right. I got particularly interested in why there was this fatalism about about um, famine in East Africa. When actually you look at the specifics of Ethiopia, it actually the climatic data, it's it's pretty, it's pretty, you can grow crops there, right? Right. It's, and, yeah. and especially in the Eastern country, it's extremely fertile. So you have these huge areas of fertile land with enough. Rent. Well, what's going on there? You know, yeah. uh, let me to just try and exp- uh, explore um, what's happening there. There's, you know, a long history of essentially political moves which disincentivize agricultural investment. And so, so anyway, that's done. And then come out of that, and then I start getting interested in uh, more about the kind of pure plant science of it so yep. I went to work in a botanical garden found that very interesting and learning there and then decided to take that a bit more seriously and formalize it with this um you know with the postgrad route and then uh, and voila and there <laughs> we are <laughs> you are um well, I do find it really interesting because maybe I'm wrong Charlie but there's not too many people certainly in this country doing what you do in the particular field of nuts is that there's a lot of chat at the moment about regen farming and agroforestry and all of yeah. that. Yeah. And so that's, I think, why I'm plugging at this as being so interesting because it's what you do is wonderful. So to end up doing it is, I think, absolutely fascinating because it's it's unusual to be focusing on nuts. Is that right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, take that. Yeah. Niche. <laughs> you know, people <laughs> one, usually with a slightly raised yeah, eyebrow come to the Yeah, sort of, I say niche is one nuts. of those words which can go niche. either way. Um Let's talk a little bit about um, your farms sure, and uh, the nuts that come out of them. But I'd like to get an idea for our listeners about where the farms are and your relationship with them. Sure. Yeah. So um, the, the, the farms in the UK are all based uh, in Kent, in this kind of um, 
in a line between uh, Seven Oaks and Maidstone. So in some of the hills there's traditionally where cobnuts are grown. Because we are a proud nut producing nation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Certainly in Kent. Yeah. Um there, there's there's so many abandoned orchards. There's 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 you know, hundreds of acres which have been grubbed up, um, you know, which, you know, is a story for lots of different crops as well. But it, yeah, there they have the, that uh, that culture. And it, and it is quite striking how insular it seems to be to Kent. I've always found it so um, inexplicable, really, why it wasn't well-known outside of Kent, um, you know, further north. There's no reason why you can't transport those, the crops and sell them elsewhere. But why is Kent such a good place for nuts to be produced? Predominantly climate, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the climate, just be- they benefit from a, from a good hot summer. I think... Um, yeah, south-facing hills, which they have there. And I think, you know, other than that, I, I, I'd be, you know, be disingenuous to say I'd, I know, like, the great, you know, key reason why they're all there. But I think it's it's kind of, you know, a combination of this, you know, good climate. And then you've got, you know, over generations, you get this tradition and this husbandry, yeah. the knowledge base there. So yeah. uh, just, I, th- I mean, to be fair, it does border, it goes into Sussex a little bit. But, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it's interesting so, you find that in other things like your cider making. That obviously yeah. there's certain parts of the country where apple trees are particularly abundant, but then it does become part of that region's tradition. That's just sort of what they do. It's, yeah. The two things go in parallel almost. Yeah, it's like we? that whole black, you know, the whole black swan hypothesis, is it? Or something like sometimes we 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 look back on events which happen in a kind of random trajectory and yep. try to instill meaning yeah, on them exactly. by picking out these key events. And yeah, you have to watch that in yourself, don't you? But I mean, having said that, it, they also do benefit from slightly alkaline soil and that's also, you know, one of the attributes of that area. So, and how many yeah. farms in the UK do you work with? So, Is farms the right word? Uh, you can say that. I mean, okay. uh, in in Kent they call them plats, P-L-A-T. But I don't use that term because I just find it alienate people. You know, it's it's an orchard. You know, right. it's an orchard with with um, but just with nuts. So um, yeah, so we've got two two of our own, and then we work with um, two two others. You know, very closely, and then there's others kind of on the sidelines that we like to extend and work a bit more with so yeah pretty much and you're out there in amongst the trees and all these things should get along to the food and forest um instagram account because they're really i love your videos johnny yeah they're really interesting because they really you know i see you on the market stall and you know i have nuts i cook with them and your packaging is very elegant and very beautiful and it's all very sort of swish in that sense and i love the uh the juxtaposition, really, the partnership of that with seeing these videos of you out there with the trees, and it sort of makes it so real, and you kind of really understand so much more about what it is you're doing. How much of your time do you spend outside, I suppose, actually, with the trees? Yeah, well, it really varies. It's really periodical. So, say, you know, in September, it's an awful lot of time really down there f- yep. full time, uh, especially the first weeks in September. Is so, that because that's when you're getting the nuts off the trees? Yeah, exactly. How does that happen? How do you do that? Yeah, well, one of the reasons they're so expensive, <laughs> I mean, or costly, value extremely for good money, value. Though, guys. Yeah, but at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're over twice the price of kind of other hazelnuts. And the primary reason is because we have to go in there and pick them. So our labour costs, labour costs account for 50% of that, of the, of the, of the product, um, of the cost of the product, because if we were to leave them, the losses from the squirrel would be nearly total. So, because we have to basically go in there uh, and, and pick them in one fell swoop as soon as they're, they're ripe. Or, so you're not waiting for them to fall? No, no. I mean, it, so how they do it in, in, in Turkey or elsewhere, they'll, they'll wait to wait until they fall. 
and then they'll um, go along with this kind of basically glorified hoover, hoover them yeah. all up, and then that's it. But, you know, that hoover's attached to a tractor, and you can do, you know, you know X acres an hour. So they're pretty pretty efficient. Um, whereas, yeah, for us, we have to go in and, and pick it, and it's all quite, quite laborious. So, yeah. But you don't mean, like, hands yeah really yeah yeah the whole thing you know get inside the tree we have two people to a row so the trees are in rows two people to a row one person either side and you've got to go in and pick and pick them off yeah. I, was, I was gonna yeah. say that's nuts and then that wasn't even gonna be intentional well, on that pun it, but that is nuts it is nuts yeah and we would love to um yeah not not have to do that is there um, a way you're eyeing up of doing it which respects the tree and the process but it's a little bit quicker certainly i mean there is one guy you know um, a kind of partnership who they do it mechanically but it's the it's the na- where our orchards are is surrounded by woodland they've got extremely high squirrel populations so if we were to let it do that our losses would be if you would let them fall high. yeah but incidentally one of the advantages of alley cropping is that it's best that the the highest environmental gains happen when it's done out in an open space. So when you're planting these trees in, say, areas of East Anglia, which are kind of broad and open and exposed to the elements, the big one of the huge environmental problems there is uh, soil erosion because of wind. So when they're ploughed in the early spring, if you get a dry a dry spell, they become friable, and then it all just blows away if there's a high high gust. So the idea is, with alley cropping is that you can plant these rows and they'll break down the wind speed, but Obviously, if you're doing that in an open landscape, you're away from squirrel habitat. So the, the, the losses from the squirrel will be absolutely minimal. So in that case, you could wait for them to fall. Right. And also the fact that they're isolated in these rows, which are 30 metres apart, means that you're able to use the machine very easily. There's no issues. You can use a big tractor if that's the tractor you have. And so operationally, it also makes more sense. Yeah. So, yeah. I find it very interesting. And I think anyone who's listening to the Burma podcast cares how their food arrives in their kitchen or on yeah. their table and how it's produced. And I do find it really interesting about uh, in olive trees, about how the olives make it off the trees and that you know, some of the commercial ways of doing it can really damage mm. the tree and kind of ripping the olives off. Yeah, shake it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But you are, I'm still trying to get my head around this. You are, you are literally <laughs> picking. We go the, in there. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I'd like to get rid of it, but I, uh, in many ways, I do love those two weeks, especially because, wow. you know, you know, so I, do you I, have a team? Yeah, we have a big okay. team. Yeah, we have we, this year we had thirty people. Uh, no, sorry, we aimed for thirty, but only got eighteen, so we had to do it for ten days rather than Can five. Can people but who are listening apply yes, to be not pickers? Yes, yes, please come down. I tell you, <laughs> one of the best weekends of the year. We have the open orchard open weekend. This year we did it. I think the seventh and eighth of September, the first weekend of September. We cook a big paella, and 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 basically people come. They get involved. They can see behind the scenes. They do a little bit of picking, and uh, in return they get a nice paella, and, and you know we we give them a tour of it. And oh it's, God. There's a little cricket game. It kicked off at five five p.m. It was it was really special. Actually, okay, I'm useless really of nice. a ladder, but I can help with yeah. the food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll be fine. Yeah, that <laughs> so, sounds, so. and it is a really really interesting aspect of it. So let's go. Mm. Th- let's carry. Now we're talking about the process a bit. We've got the nuts. Then yeah. what happens to them? So yeah, you got the nuts, and then there's quite a lot of post processing that happens. So you, you, you get them in, and then we take them off, and then I work in partnership with another farmer. And basically, it's quite a bit that goes into it, but we get through to the final product around around November. So that again, because they have to be dried. Yeah, 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 and then shelled and then sorted, and uh, it's kind of doing that at scale is really the essence of this kind of capacity building. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, heading. So, yeah, that 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 is key, and that is what I spent a lot of time uh, focusing on, really. And um, I'm sure that the ways of shelling, drying, roasting, whatever has to happen for yeah. the nuts, the different ways of doing that again affects the final results. Certainly, yeah, in flavour and texture. Mm. I still, yeah, but it's amazing working with chefs. You know, I really want to be able to supply more of them wholesale, and it's kind of a big motivation to, to bring some of the because that's the side of things that we have control over, more, more ultimate control. You know, we can complain about the grey school, but really, you know, we can work very hard at making those those post post harvest operations as slick and as cost efficient as possible. Without obviously, I mean, it's basically me who does it. So, um, actually, and Oscar, my cousin, I should shout out to Oscar. <laughs> Last year, absolutely fantastic guy. We were staying at this house. It was there was no heating. Respect, Oscar. Thank you. So, <laughs> um, uh, but um, uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, but working with chefs, for example, there's there's one chef I was just speaking to yesterday. He 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 um, takes the the cobner, he he vacuum packs it and then cooks it. For, at 60 degrees for for um i think he said six weeks wow yeah and then he make and then he makes this kind of like brown butter and cobner ice cream Ooh. yeah that and it good. also he, he calls them black cobnuts then and i've i've not tried it he just described it to me yesterday and then he also puts them in this um like a a, a red wine jus with a, of a wild boar I was oh my like, goodness wow. that yeah. does sound absolutely incredible yeah, really wow. does. Loving that. Yeah. And so uh, why I mentioned that is because really what chefs will want, um, you know, we it's it's really actually quite exciting for the future because we can really respond to that. And the more we know about those processes like that, yeah. we can we can tailor a product for, for those specific needs. Because yeah. I really think, like, I was thinking on the way in, I was listening to a couple of the other podcasts previously, you know, talk about cheese, I think, with Dan Saladino. Yeah. Yeah. I have to think with nuts, you know, it's such a... You know, it's just such a basic ingredient in 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 a popular public conception. But Absolutely. it's like, you know, the 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 way you handle it. You know what the guys are doing over at, um, you know, Palace Culture and mm-hmm. and uh, um, what's that other one called with the macadamia cheese, uh, nettle, nettle. Yeah, yeah. They make this incredible fermented nut cheese. You know, yeah. with macadamias and the and uh, I think they preserve it. Yeah, they got rapeseed oil and then a bit of marjoram in the top. It's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. You know, and. I think one of the things that's underdeveloped is um, just how how you make nuts more digestible. So this, you know how how we get rid of the phytic acid problem, which is a kind of anti nutrient that's present in cashews, for example. And uh, there are certain things which the way you handle the raw nut from from taking from the tree through to final product, you can really you could really improve. I feel like it's such an area of opportunity um, for the kind of food world. That, yeah, you know, um, is it? A growing understanding, Johnny, to people of, oh come on, it's just it's just a walnut, like you <laughs> no, know, exactly. get over yourself. I had a right go at Leo from <laughs> Northfield Farm if he's listening, because he comes up, he says, oh, you know, uh, for me it's like you know I've got wagyu. He doesn't talk to me actually. I don't know why I'm doing a Northern accent caricaturing myself here. He's from Leicester. I can't do his accent anyway. You know, he was like saying, oh, we've got X, Y, Z different varieties of beef. It's not like a walnut where it's just a walnut. You must have got mad, Leo, Charlie. I did. <laughs> It's but a lovable it, rotor. So. Do you feel that that message is is it hard to get across? Is it getting any easier to get across? No, I, I, I no. I think it's um, it's. I mean, that's one of the great things about Borough, right? And one of the 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 kind of 
Yeah. It's, it's, to be able to communicate that to people, you know, yeah. obviously if, if it's what people knew already, there'd be no need for us. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's good to, yeah, it's one of the enjoyable things about yeah. it. Yeah, being able to kind of talking about it. You know, I, I tend to use on the store, you know, talk about how different varieties of apple, that's kind of, you know, in the in the popular imagination right yeah. now. And it's, it's like that for nuts as well. Yeah. So. And it's, I think it's, well, you've, the analogy I often use on talking about different varieties of whatever it might be, because everyone's got their head around the apple thing. Yeah. So it's only about translating what you know about. Exactly. You're so used to having different varieties of apples, only the same thing. But I think it is a challenge for people initially to think about it when it is to do with things like walnuts. Yeah. That it's just not something they've heard before, which I think makes what you're doing so absolutely exciting yeah let's move on charlie to thinking about your relationships with um, farms outside of the uk just tell us a little sure. bit about those yeah well one of the i'm really happy with um yeah the, the farms i've been, been working with them for yeah i guess three over three years now so um that's down in spain um it's a kind of a group down there called the um almendra Hesa, and their objective is to um uh, so I hesitate to use the word, but it's regenerative agriculture. Okay, and we can go into the de- why I hesitate to use it. Yeah, let's do that. To... Otherwise, we're going to forget. All right. Why well, you hesitate? Well, just because it's a little bit of a buzzword, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's one of those words which is maybe used to, as a marketing tool rather than rather than kind of going into what it actually means, you know. Whereas, uh, you know, and, and it's so vague. And so, but is it helpful in being a buzzword by getting people just thinking a little bit differently? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a nice handle into yeah. the detail, but I think I suppose the frustration is then you don't you don't get the detail afterwards, you know, yeah. because obviously it sparks people interest. Interest. Okay, what's this? Why is it different from from organic? What what actually is it? And okay, well, is, what actually is it? Well, yeah, my definition of it is essentially any kind of farming that seeks to uh, that goes into a landscape and instead of taking from the landscape, uh, seeks to improve the ecological health of the landscape, improve. Um, so, for example, the Almendrahesa, they work on a on a four returns basis. And one of those is the return of, of inspiration. So their particular issue in southern Spain is the kind of uh, basically depopulization of the, of the countryside. Mm-hmm. So lack of youth opportunities and yeah. so on. And so a big part of their ethos is to bring back youth employment and provide a hopeful vision of the future. So... Um, but as a bare bones definition, yeah, regenerative is regenerative agriculture is any agriculture that seeks to um, improve the ecology of that area rather than degrade it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and what's the difference or the similarities between that and agroforestry? Well, or so are they completely different? I'd have made an idiot. Myself. The thing is, agroforestry is <laughs> you can get away with calling something agroforestry if you just you know, if you do a certain method. So, for example, you can farm non-organically. You can continue using conventional methods and just put trees across across the um, field and, and that would technically be agroforestry. But, I mean, that's not the angle that, that we take. It's yeah. not what, what's interested in, uh, not what my interest is is in it. But one of the one of the key things, for example, in in the Spanish example is the use of cover cropping. So I like to immediately take people into like specific methods because standard practice in 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 all nut farming is to, is to keep the the ground completely bare mm-hmm. because any kind of ground can, uh, cover is seen as competition for water and resources, and that's true of grass. But if you actually have you know different uh, uh, legumes or nitrogen fixing plants, these these um, it's kind of counterintuitive, but these plants that um, take nitrogen out of the air and as they grow they actually fix it in the soil 
and nitrogen is like the key building block of, of plant life. So it's one of the examples of you can use some of these tools of nature, if, if you will, um, to, to to improve your yield, but also improve the overall health of the area. So, yeah. yeah. And that's what your farms, you, do, you, do you only work with farms who so that's the key, that way? Yeah, well, no, because... It's very, it's, for example, it's very difficult within the, the our French walnuts. To, there's, we haven't found anybody who's doing that. Okay. In the in the French example, and that's also to do with um, the collection methods. But we're working that anyway. But in the in the Spanish example, um, we certainly only get the almonds from 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 people who are doing that because yeah. it's one. Their their situation is is kind of unique in Europe as well because they're they're. Um, you know, such an arid climate down there that they're very, very much interested in stopping desertification. So that's a big thing for them is the use of cover cropping to try and to try and hold moisture in the land. So yeah. that's extremely important for them. So and this is Andalusia. Yeah. Beautiful, yeah, yeah, beautiful parts of the world, but very, very yeah. dry. And, and as you referred to earlier, they have real challenges of what's happening to the population, the workforce, and therefore the agricultural impacts of that. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. And the thing I also admire about that group is that they're trying to do it on a landscape scale. So they're using the kind of good things that come with um, with scale. You know, they're, they're working with about 80 different farmers and they're trying to have this kind of integrated landscape approach. So instead of dealing with it on a farm... So, you know, there's no point in dealing with, say, um, the... <laughs> the influence your farming method has on water pollutants running into a river system, if somebody else in that basin is just, in yeah. that river basin area is, right. is, is doing the same. Yeah. So, you know, they've obviously registered that. And to be fair, in this country, we're beginning to register that as well. Um, and having that kind of, yeah, integrated approaches. Um, so we talked briefly about France and we talked a little bit more about Spain. And where else... Oh, sorry, taking a bit of water. No, 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 no. Uh, Italy. Italy, yes. So just south of uh, Turin there. And then, um, yeah, we've got some South African producers as well, which actually have the, uh, exactly the same situation in, in South Africa in that they, they're using cover crops because they're obviously extremely arid area as well. Yeah, yeah. And they've done an amazing job, actually. Aerial footage of that farm is fantastic because it looks like it looks like this oasis surrounded by desert, basically. So. How do you find these farms, Johnny? Well, it's great. Now they they come to me. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't at first, but now they do. Yeah, so, well, yeah, I bet well, they do. No, well, the South Africa one did. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, at the start, I mean, it's great. That was one of the great things about the job, right? You send out a few a few, um, a few, emails, whatever, you know, uh, look on certain websites. I mean, it's kind of easy in, in, in the Italian case and the French case because they're all, they all have that uh, PDO, you know, so they're mm-hmm. all within a specific geographic area. Go out there for a couple of nights, drive around, you know, try and talk to them and stuff. So, Brilliant. yeah, yeah. Um, so, with thinking very much about your specific uh, way of thinking and doing things and, and how that arrives in the delicious nuts that you have on stall and sell, but I'm wondering about your take on the wider where we are in terms of farming. Um, and so I'm, I should have warned you about this, actually. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, but maybe it's better that, not yeah? to have done. Um, I'm curious about your take on the agriculture, Bill. Well, yeah, I mean, the pace of that change is glacial, isn't it? But at the same time, I shouldn't be impatient because it is important to get right, obviously, for so once of a generation. 
Um, Let's give the listeners who may not know a little bit of background on sure. why the Agriculture Bill is interesting. Yeah, fine. It's also one of the reasons I started this when I did. Really? Okay. Because, yeah. It, so, a bit of background to agriculture. So, 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 when we were in the EU, we were under the um, jurisdiction of the CAP. So, the Common Agricultural Policy meant that that uh, kind of... Uh, form the framework of how we create our grant system in this country. So obviously we left the EU and now we've got to create it for ourselves. And um, in, in the kind of transition from 2017 to 2010 to, to where we are now, there's been the opportunity to submit to public consultations ideas about um, some, of, some of the kind of um, mistakes of the cap and how we can rectify them. So one of those key areas in terms of agroforestry was the fact that it was never clear whether you'd be eligible for certain farm payments if you had um, more than 400 trees per hectare, for example. So you weren't able to um, do this combination of farming and forestry because, for example, any woodland creation grants from the Forestry Commission stipulated that any kind of agricultural activity on that land would make you ineligible and you had to give the, give the um, money back. And likewise, uh, from the DEFRA grants, if you had, you know, a more, if you had basically, um, you know, a certain number of trees on your land, you would be classed as forestry and you'd be out. So it existed, it had this kind of grey area where it wasn't, um, and so farmers were understandably quite unwilling to um, take that risk. <clears throat> Except one pioneer, Stephen Briggs, absolute pioneer of agroforestry, really wrote the book on this amazing uh, report, Nuffield report on that, if anyone was interested. But, but that's so that's the basic picture. Yeah. And then, so, so as you say, it's kind of a once in a generation moment for us, us as a nation, really, yeah. to kind of you know, grab it and decide what do we want from our farming future. Exactly, and it's really positive because that that one of the keep. So after the consultation, they had these pilot studies which were put forward, and then Defra decided to take full take forward, um, and not too many. I think you, you know. Uh, less than ten, and one of those is the um, agroforestry. One of one of those is this alley cropping proposal, who's who actually been left by Stephen Briggs as well. So it's in safe hands. But uh, um, yeah, and we're still waiting on the outcomes of that. Basically, yeah. I mean, one of the issues with agriculture is it's such a long feedback loop, right? right <laughs> you know, right, right. it takes a year. Yeah. Certainly, we're not so. Um, so anyone's interested in finding out a bit more about agriculture and why last year there was a lot of chat not just in the food world and the farming world but it really sort of hit a much larger frame of interest really we did one of these talks and so if you go back on to however you're listening to this podcast if you sort of go back on the series we did on last year with Minette Batters who is the head of National Farmers Union and Tim Lang who does a lot of work on food policy and Tom Parker Bowles who at that point certainly um, was really kind of focusing on the needs and the issues and the wants and desires of um, small producers and farmers. So it was a really interesting session talking to those guys about how they were thinking of the agriculture bill. And you know, one of the things that really came up was, and I know the least about this, certainly in this room and definitely of those people I just mentioned, so stop me when I get this wrong. But I think one of the things we were talking about was the transition of money for the size of your land versus giving money for looking after the land exactly is that right. exactly a very right. very crass way of yeah. explaining it no but that's it's crass because it was crass it was it was a crude mechanism it really was and, and and you know it's been tinkered and improved over the years but yeah i mean you know you had this ridiculous situation you know farmers plowing land just because you know they had to out of a certain you know to just satisfy certain acreage and so on so yeah 
Yeah, basically, yeah, going from a situation where, you know, back in the back in the day, it was even you know per head of cattle you had. You know, the more cattle you had, you were rorted and bigger acreage. As you say, it's crude mechanism, isn't it? Just looking at exactly, yeah, and well, it's most clearly articulated in in the mantra of the whole consultation, which was public money for public good. Uh-huh. So yeah, instead of having, you know, a situation where you're rewarded for for how big your farm is, you're rewarded for the public goods you provide. Yeah. How do you feel, Charlie, about the future for British? farming and agroforestry yeah really relatively positive um yeah i think you know i think it's all my experience as well and something that i suppose just comes with with uh actually engaging with the real world is is how you know it's all very well having these these uh you know you can have the 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 most efficient grant system in the world but you've got to meet eye to eye in terms of personalities you know the people you're working with that 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 so for example the nature of what we're trying to do is work with existing farmers to plant trees across uh, across the land you know and that raises kind of some issues about about uh tenancy about ownership about their ability to be able to sell the land and so on and so actually working out those kind of nitty-gritty uh details um you know is is key as well so yeah. um yeah, but but overall, yeah, I feel uh, very positive about it. I think um, you know some of the trials they've done has been particularly um, quite innovative. You know, Wessex Water did this trial where they did a kind of reverse auction. So they had so Wessex Water obviously responsible water quality in in Wessex, one of the water companies, and basically approached farmers um, saying we want to pay you. Essentially, we want to pay you for the nitrogen that you don't leach into the river. So, and then they had this this quantity I can't remember, but say, you know, two hundred or so. And then farmers would two hundred units, and then farmers would apply to take part in this. And then that, and then I can't remember the exact value, but it was you know, you say ten pound per unit, or probably more, you know, a thousand pound per unit. And then it would be attributed to to each farmers based on, on I think the land they didn't plow or the land in which they. They planted something which which would basically prevent that leaching. So, you know that that kind of, you know, again a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But that kind of joined up and integrated approach is yeah. is, is you know it's certainly being trialed. There's no reason why why it can't it can't carry on and become yeah far more commonplace. Yeah. What's it like being a trader, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the good, the bad, and the ugly, but maybe le- maybe less <laughs> of the bad than the ugly. No, but honestly, what is it like being a trader? Cold. <laughs> yeah, this time of year it's cold. Yeah, but uh oh yeah, it's um it's great. I mean, yeah, the good bag and the ugly. You get um you get everything, you know. How did you become a trader at the market? Well, yeah, I it's funny, I, I started uh, out working at a different one of the other companies uh when I was a student and then just kind of always been in and around the market and then when I graduated worked at Elliot's uh in the kitchen there. Love that. And uh yeah, I've always loved the loved the atmosphere of the place and love what was behind the food as well. So, um, yeah, and then applied. You know, took took a few years out of London and then came back and applied. And thought, you know, really kind of geared the product, geared the the aesthetic to the market, and thought it had a good place here. So, yeah. How long have you been at the market? So since uh, November twenty seventeen. So okay, so yeah, it's so a good long while actually, four, isn't it? Yeah, 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 just over four years now. So. Yeah, but again, it's changed so much, you know. At the beginning, it was doing, uh, you know, far fewer products and would, um, 
you know, just taking on feedback, taking on feedback all the time about what people wanted, what people were interested in, and so on. And and really, when the when the business started, we didn't have those links with the with the Cobnut producers, for uh-huh. example, or we didn't have those orchards ourselves. And that was something that we grew into. Um, and um, yeah, really glad we did because it's such a it's a great thing to do, really. Yeah, is that connection with the shopper must be well, a a great focus group, yeah, and really it. It must be lovely to have that direct thing with people who are yeah yeah hundred percent yeah it's, it's, it's also quite frustrating I imagine at times <sighs> nah sometimes you just it, <laughs> don't don't let it bother you I, think I have yeah I can't remember really the last time well best not focus on no the no, last no, time no, no 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 <laughs> no no I meant more in as we've said a few times so there is the nuts are simply just more expensive people sure. people are used to going to their local supermarket yeah. and buying some hazelnuts to go onto a cake or whatever yeah. but they they're used to a certain thing and so it is it's education is hopelessly the wrong word but it is about enlightening people and understanding and appreciating and that's sure. so much what the market's about anyway yeah. but that's why i meant really that's yeah what... no i get you yeah yeah I, I mean i do i don't mind that i feel like we've we you know because we get obviously practice that every single day we're pretty good at being able to get that across in right. quite a concise way i mean some of your podcast listeners might disagree but <laughs> um, yeah to you know to explain you know some of the you know the, the instance of the cob you know we we have to pick it whereas in here uh, you know elsewhere they can kind of do it in the machines it kind of sparks a bit of interest yeah. and you know you're seeing people if they are interested and so on and we just you know for me it's about being able to look someone in the eye and say you know uh, my role is really to make sure that that cost, the the final cost to the to the to the customer is as much a representation of those um, kind of labour and, and and harvest costs that that mm. are at the moment kind of unavoidable than it is of any inefficiency in the system on my part. So, making sure that really the cost that we're passing on to customers is a truly fair cost and is not some kind of oversight or, yeah. or laziness or or that's a good way of thinking i've never really you know thought about it quite like that yeah. that people might think there's a lag somewhere that if you just got a bit better at that charlie you could walk a couple <laughs> well, of quid off your well, bag well yeah but i mean that that's what it is and that's where scale comes into yeah. it of course i mean sure other traders listen will know no 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 about that um so um i'm sure you find that as soon as you hand out a sample of the nuts, which you're very generous with, I have to say, that that changes minds sure. or opens yeah. minds as quickly yeah. as any explanation is going to do. Because when you do try one of those hazelnuts for a cobnut, what's the difference between a hazelnut and a cobnut? Aha! Well, they're both <laughs> in the same family, so okay. Corollus family, Corollus avalana. But uh, again, say that again, because I talked over it. Oh, it's fine. Just they're so the same family, same you know, uh, it's called Corollus Corollus avalana. You don't have to be fancy, but. Uh, um, uh, yeah, so it's just they're, they're the same. They're essentially the same tree, uh, and they just produce different different varieties. You know, it's just like a, a cox or a pink lady. Okay, wood. so okay, so yeah. they're, they're that similar. Yeah, well, that's that's the reason why we we have we have the Tonda Gentile variety, which is the Italian one, which is you know completely different flavor profile. It looks completely different from the Cobno, but they're both the same. Uh, yeah, the same family. They're both right. hazelnuts. Yeah. So I say, you know, you ever tried a Cobno? It's a, a British hazelnut and so on and do you want to contrast it with this you get the visual yeah. look they're completely different they also you know completely different composition as well the the Tonda Gentiles you got 66 grams per 100 gram I mean uh, of, of polyunsaturated fat there so it's it's basically a, it's just a little ball of cream yeah. it's absolutely delicious yeah but, yeah, um, yeah completely yeah it's so Moorish as well I mean, yeah um 
I should probably get, actually, I think he could do something genius with that wild boar sauce, actually, just thinking about that. Jeff, I mentioned earlier <laughs> yeah. with those as well. That does so. sound amazing. Yeah. And yeah. you do flavoured nuts as well? Yeah, certainly, yeah, we do We do all sorts. I mean, that's a big thing I've worked on as well, is just trying to get, you know, being able to produce something unique. So, say, you know, like with the using fresh garlic in the cayenne and garlic almond, you know, blending that down and then mixing the powdered spices into that fresh garlic puree and then coating them up. That's quite an unusual mm. way of doing it because mm. most places you'd have to put your flavouring when you're doing it mechanically through an applicator, so like, which essentially is a big hose, you know. Um, so because we don't have to do it, it gives us a bit more control about the kind of flavours we can bring in and that creates a real different texture as well when the oven baked rather than in the cylinder. So... Um, yeah. And you did some lovely, uh, interesting, and unusual in a really good way, flavour combinations. Yeah. I think... Uh, like the saffron and lime? That is my personal favourite. That's a new, yeah. new one. I'm <laughs> yeah. loving but that. But they're kind. quite... It's quite a... Is that the <laughs> yeah. one that's got quite a kick to it, isn't it? <laughs> well, a little bit. Is it more... Of quite a little bit tart? A little yeah, bit yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. really lovely. Lovely with a drink. Yeah. They're very nice. Cool. Um, shelf life for nuts. Yeah, long that's, time. Yeah. But would I be right in saying that... I, say, I, hate, I don't really like... in doing this sort of um, harsh line, like a supermarket, bad. You know, sure. Go, that's, it's too, because it's too black and white and there, it's it, and it's not sure it's all that helpful, actually. Mm. But would I be right in saying that typically supermarket nuts have been sitting on those shelves for quite a long time and that doesn't do them any favours? They can be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a big thing, a big thing is, again, with a kind of cultural um, difference, is in France, for example, they dry the, mo- the the walnut moisture content down to twelve percent, whereas uh, standard elsewhere is seven percent. So you get so that tends to, when you dry it right down, it'll increase the, the the shelf life of the product. So you'd be looking at eighteen months for for ones that'd be done down to seven percent. But really, for twelve percent, twelve to nine months maximum, and as soon as you eat them, the better. And we keep them all airtight as well, which which really helps with that. And we get we get them periodically about six to eight weeks as well. So they're kept in shell over there in France and then they're essentially cracked water. So that's how you know, that that's the difference. Um you know it you know, in their defence, it's it you know, it makes sense for the for the nuts to be less at risk mm. of, of going rancid by drying them down to that that uh, point. But you lose flavour. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that as well. I was listening to the podcast earlier as well. It's good to, yeah, introduce that kind of nuance and, and not and also, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And supermarket, you know. Exactly. I could not with straight face sit here and do this podcast and pretend that I my life wouldn't work without Cardo. Right. <laughs> you know, that's just, yeah. it's just true. And and most people, you know, well, not most people, probably most people who are interested in food and work at the market, shop at the market, interested in these things, is a blend of how you approach your life and your approach. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to think about that, you know, as well, like when the pandemic hit, you know, everybody panicked by it. You know, would, it would be disingenuous wouldn't it, to sit here and say we would have been able to soak up everything there. Yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, and obviously not, you know, panic buying was, was not great or to be encouraged, but, you know. But the market really, you know, in those initial periods, certainly of lockdown, I did feel that... There was this increased connection with the local community of just coming to get bread and apples and milk and yeah. the real basic stuff, yeah. which the local community do anyway. But mm. it really because obviously the tourists couldn't come, yeah. day trippers couldn't come. It, did you, as a trader, feel that move, that shift? Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked it before the pandemic. It didn't really, uh, you know, 
the connection between traders as well was 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 great. You know, as I mean, before the pandemic, it's just kind of you know so busy, or everybody yeah. kind of in their bubble and yeah. it's, it's kind of trying to trying to make it work. And then when that came, it just kind of you know you find yourself looking across the market and you can actually see through it for once, yeah. you know. And then maybe you say hello to yeah, the to yeah, the person yeah. over there or whatever. So it's very nice camaraderie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've definitely felt that. I mean, we had a little move in the pandemic, and the people were next to you, yeah, really, you know, we we yeah. Good friends, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I say on those days when it's cold and you're out there <laughs> yeah. all day, you think yeah. you've got to just like be able to have a bit of laugh to get through it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's hard. I was thinking also people maybe don't really kind of get that. I think it's really hard. It's a hard job, isn't it? I mean, there's it's definitely hard, easier ways job. of doing stuff. Yeah. And I'm lucky. I've got an amazing team around me. It's we're you know it's been hard to to find, and our fans are so grateful. So they're. They they know who they are, Maria, Yana, and uh, they're the kind of two full-time... You're very good uh, at the name yeah. checks, Charlie. Oh, well, just, you know. <laughs> it's well, very, you know, no, you can't do these things on people. your own, you know. It's, yeah. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What's next for Food and Forest? What's coming up? Well... Wait, what are you eyeing up? Basically, you know, sit down in January, obviously it's a good time to kind of, um, you know, look at where you are, you know, set some targets and all the rest of it. Um, so it's really, there's an absence of any giant new shiny uh, thing. But it's essentially to do what we're doing, but do it better. So, having said that, there is actually one big new thing coming on. So we're going to, yeah, of course, okay. we're going to start producing on the stall. So, oh. uh, I, well, I don't know. Well, whatever. If, if it's basically in the final stage of approval, so I'm hoping that it's going to come through. But um, yeah, start producing uh, some of the brittles. So we're going to on Monday, Thursday, when the snow will be behind us, we're going to take out that second that second uh, parasol. And Explain then, to our listeners where you are. Where can they find you? Where are you? You can find us in the green market. So yeah, just over the other side, uh, through the arches across Mill Road. So um, yeah, we can. Which find is a the, very exciting kind of big buzzy yeah. space. I I love that part of the market. I love yeah. all, all the market equally, obviously. Yeah. But I think that bit is really kind of buzzy. You kind of weave in between, and it's always like I. You know, who go to the market quite a lot and, and you know I'm happy to be able to say I know it quite well you sort of turn and go oh gosh they're there yeah. and I you know I really like that feel around yeah. that bit but you can take a space behind you yeah and then uh, basically do some of the production there wow. so be able Exciting. to do some of the confection yeah we'll have a little marble top and and uh, yeah be able to experiment with new flavours as well which I'm quite looking forward to so yeah um, so that's in the pipeline um, yeah and just keeping an eye on what's going on with this pilot study as well and hopefully get that off the ground so um yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Charlie, thanks ever so much for taking the time to come and talk today. Yeah. Um, I hugely encourage anyone listening to get themselves down to be well also go online. Your web, you've got a really sure. great yeah. website, I think, which, which yeah. really tells people a lot about the kind of things you've been talking about. Yeah, exactly. You've got today. you know, page on each of the different producers and how yeah. you know our relationship has evolved. So yeah, it's foodandforest.co.uk. Yeah. yeah. And have a look at social media, but mainly get That's down it. to the market and have a chat and try some nuts and get exactly. some and discover just how just how brilliant they are. Yeah, we're open seven days a week we're over there. So yeah, you can find us any day of the week. Great stuff. Charlie, thanks ever so much. Lovely to see you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. A reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week. For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.